So you'll just have to imagine um, a slide up there that says fake news or good news. Nevertheless, there's plenty of bad news in the world. Indications of another round of COVID are surfing. There we go. Uh, there's a war on between Russia and Ukraine, closer to home. The price of just about everything, and I do mean everything, is skyrocketing. We're in an era where the stock market has taken one tumble after another, after another, after another. We are in bear territory, as they say. So there's plenty of bad news in the world. But there's good news too, namely this, that God, who created the world and all that is in it, sent his only begotten Son into the world as our representative to live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we should have died. And he resurrected on the third day to secure our justification. Consequently, anyone who believes in Christ, that is, anyone who places their full trust and confidence in Jesus Christ to take away all of their sins, will stand justified before God and will one day live as a sinless person with other sinless persons in a sinless and perfect world forever. But that is good news. It's more than just good news, it's fantastic news, it's great news. And so there's good news to counteract the bad news in the world, but there's also, also some fake news that we really can't ignore. Uh, fake news spreads fast, much faster than real news. There's a team of researchers at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology who found that false news not only spreads faster than true news, but it also has a much wider reach. The top 1% of fake news uh, spread by tweets on Twitter reached between 1,000 and 100,000 people. Well, that's a pretty narrow gap there, isn't it? A thousand, but somewhere between a thousand and a hundred thousand. Uh, that's for the fake news. Uh, while true information rarely reached more than one thousand people, the research team broke down the news into different categories: uh, politics, business, natural disasters, and so forth. And in every one of these categories, false news spread faster and went farther than true news. Not surprisingly, false political news spread the fastest. But fake religious news spreads pretty fast too. There is a plethora of false gospels, uh, an exceedingly high number of fake good news stories that are circulating in the world today. And uh, we're going to expose some of these false gospels for what they are so that you will not be unduly affected by them. And although there are a number of pseudo-Christian cults in the world, like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses, we're not going to talk about them because we're already uh, pretty much aware of who they are. Um, so we're going to look at some uh, that have found their way into maybe not as wide a stream as uh, the aforementioned uh, groups, but nonetheless find their way into the mainstream of Christian teaching. 
But some of the fake good news uh, that you hear is pretty blatant, and some of it is rather subtle. So this is why uh, we've assigned these false gospels with particular ratings similar to what you see in a movie. You know, G for general audiences, PG, parental guidance, PG-13, parents strongly warned, R, uh, restricted. So uh, I thought it might be a good idea to rate our sermons in a similar fashion. So uh, some will be rated FR for feather ruffling. Um, some are rated HB for hot button. Uh, those are coming up. Uh, we're not doing uh, those today. Uh, by the way, uh, Jared will be doing most of the hot button sermons. <laughs> While I am still the senior pastor, I take the opportunity to pull rank <laughs> and uh, take advantage of the perks that come with seniority. So there we have it. Uh, so anyway, the uh, first false gospel that we're going to expose is, or has been rated, you are uh, under the radar. Uh, we're going to be looking at a false gospel called quietism. And first thought that comes to your mind might be this, what in the world is quietism? Well, that's why it's rated you are, it's under the radar, no one's ever heard of it, but it is active and very active in uh, Christian mainstream teaching today. So as we approach uh, this um, particular false gospel, quietism, uh, I want to raise three questions, and uh, here they are. Uh, what is quietism? Where do we see it addressed in the Bible? And how does it affect the way we live as Christians in the world today? So. Uh, first question, what is quietism? Well, most people are not familiar with this term, but in various ways, the phenomenon of quietism has been with the church for centuries. In its broadest use, the term quietism refers to any approach to philosophy or religion which seeks to negate the human mind and or will. So, Maybe the best way to describe it is that it's a passive approach to Christian living, uh, which you may have heard expressed in a phrase like this, just let go and let God. In some circles, it is believed that preachers don't need to study or prepare their sermons because the Holy Spirit will give them the words that they need in, as, as soon as they get up and stand behind the pulpit. I can tell you from 40 plus years of experience of doing this that that is not the way the Holy Spirit works. He does not operate independent of your mind, but through your mind. Uh, perhaps the best way to describe quietism is the belief that you need to be totally passive about the way God works in you. So when passivity is in work in you, Comfort becomes your highest value. You resist the call to wrestle against sin, not only in your own life, but also in the, the world at large. So quietism is behind the choice to avoid evil realities all around you. Uh, 
Erwin Lutzer, uh, who is a longtime pastor at Moody Church in Chicago, has written several books, um, heard him speak on an occasion where he related an instance uh, or a series of instances that took place in Germany uh, during the beginning uh, days of World War II. In those days, churches didn't have air conditioning, so in the summertime, the people who were gathered for worship uh, could hear the trains that would come by their church. And on more occasion than one, many of those trains were loaded up with Jews on their way to death camps. And as the trains passed by the churches, the uh, Jewish people who were in the, the boxcars could see the steeples there and they would begin to cry out uh, loudly uh, for help. And the way that the German Christians responded was to sing louder and crank up that organ as loud as it would go so that it would drown out the cries and the screams of those who were destined to die. That's quietism. A quietism is choosing to ignore the stuff that surrounds you and uh, not do anything about it. You know, things like this uh, make it uncomfortable for us to discuss. Uh, I mean, talking about the evils that are around us, uh, particularly in church, makes us uncomfortable. We'd rather just focus on the happy things. And indeed, there are plenty of people who do focus on happy things exclusively, uh, but that's a different fake gospel, which will be uh, brought to you at a, another time. Uh, but today, uh, we're talking about uh, uncomfortable things. So uh, let me mention a couple. Uh, abortion. Uh, that's a delicate and divisive issue, isn't it? Uh, but killing babies inside or outside the womb is wrong. Slavery, uh, racism uh, is and has been an ugly reality in this country from early colonial days before we were even a nation. Now, I think we all recognize we need to do something about these problems, but we don't know how. At anything that makes us uncomfortable, uh, we choose to just ignore and hope that it will just go away. That's quietism at work. Uh, quietism persuades us to seek things that are comfortable. We like being comfortable. Uh, that's why we have padded seats and air conditioning. <laughs> uh, I like comfort. Uh, everyone does, but sometimes there are things that we have to recognize that are not comfortable and um, we should not walk away from them. So in considering uh, this subject, uh, quietism, uh, the desire to seek comfort and uh, be passive uh, about needs that are around us, uh, there are some questions I want to raise uh, be before I go any further. And, and the questions are these. Um, what relationship should the church have with the world? 
Should we keep ourselves separate from the world or should we seek to somehow engage the world? If so, how? How do we engage the world? Does the gospel have anything to say about social issues? If so, what is it? And how should we react? Do you see why these questions are so pervasive? Why quietism is so pervasive, rather? Um, by the way, uh, there are a lot of similarities between slavery and abortion. A recent article in the Washington Times uh, put it like this, and I'm summarizing the article. It, it says, for, uh, for society to justify either, victims must be dehumanized. In both cases, human beings created in the image of God and bestowed with unalienable rights are reduced in stature for a society to justify their horrendous treatment. Or just declare fetuses as non-human, declare slaves as non-human, and they're your property, so you can do anything you want with them. Should we say anything about that or just let it go, let it take its course? Does the gospel have anything to say to such issues as these? Yes, it does. But how do we approach such issues? We I have to confess, I, I don't know that we know how. And that may be because there are two polar extremes when it comes to addressing issues that are moral and political at the same time. At one end of the line is quietism, which we have been talking about. It's manifested in the tendency to dismiss political affairs as thoroughly evil and to avoid participating them or in them as much as possible. At the other extreme are two modes of operation. One of them is activism. Activism is the, there, by the way, there will be uh, a sermon on uh, activism. Uh, that's a hot button issue. And Jared will tell you more about that when it's his turn to do that. Uh, but just to kind of give you some background information, activism is the practice of taking direct action to achieve political or social goals. and. Uh, you know, we, we see a lot of activism in our country today through organized protests, riots, and other bad behavior like demanding and getting things such as the defunding of police. And uh, activism is one of the responses uh, at the polar opposite of quietism. So on the one hand, quietism, don't get involved at all. Uh, activism, get involved to the point where you get public opinion on your side and you force through change um, almost immediately. There's a, in addition to activism on, you know, you got quietism over here, you got activism over here. I think I might have reversed that, but that's okay. You get the idea. If you, if you got uh, polarism, I mean, if you got uh, um, uh, quietism on, on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, you've got activism. There's one other polar opposite, which is known as triumphalism. Triumphalism 
is the tendency to make political affairs central to the Christian life. It's a mindset that views most or all of life through the lens of the culture wars, uh, a fight that according to the triumphalists that God has commissioned Christians to fight and to win. Triumphalism views the church as an agent for uniting and mobilizing Christians around a political agenda. According to quietists, believers should focus their energy on Christian communities and beware of mixing with the world. Now, so on the one hand, the quietest temptation is understandable and it's attractive. Politics is often a sordid business. Governments perpetrate countless evils and immersion in political affairs carries spiritual dangers. And um, little wonder that many, if not most of us, want to separate ourselves from politics altogether. You can count me as being among that group. I would rather not talk about this. But even more, I don't want to fall prey to the fake gospel of quietism. So here we are. Even though I want to avoid political controversy in the church, uh, I would rather just preach the gospel and talk about happy things. But there's that nagging question that keeps coming back. Does the gospel have anything to say about social issues or is it exclusively an individual thing? We want to be authentic Christians, don't we? Don't we? Isn't that what we want? Which means we can't afford to be quietists. We can't afford to seek our comfort above all else. We can't just make a profession of faith and get baptized and coast the rest of the way in. All right, so we've addressed our first question. What is quietism? It is the belief that you should be totally passive about the way God works in you. And uh, now let's go to the second question. Uh, it's not working. Okay, the second question is, where do we see quietism addressed in the Bible? Here we go. Uh, a lot of places, actually. Uh, I want to take you to Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but the salt has lost its savor. It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by man. So when Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, isn't he saying that we should have some kind of impact upon the, uh, the, the world around us? Um, in John chapter 6, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, uh, prior to his breaking the uh, five loaves and two fishes into enough to feed the whole multitude, uh, he raises a, a question when the disciples uh, come to Jesus and say, uh, how about let's send the people away into the towns and villages around uh, here so they can get something to eat? And Jesus says to them, uh, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. So what is Jesus saying when he says, you give them something to eat? Did Jesus really need those five loaves and those two fish? Did he really need these uh, 12 disciples to be involved 
and the distribution of the food? Could Jesus, I mean, if he could uh, create enough to feed thousands of people, um, could he not have just provided uh, box lunches that magically would appear in, in everyone's hands and let it go with that and everybody would really be impressed with the miracle. But you see, Jesus wants us to be involved. There's a social need here. People were hungry. Jesus wants to meet that need, but he wants to involve his people in meeting that need. Another instance where we see uh, quietism addressed in the parable of the Good Samaritan. You're familiar with this parable? There is a, a certain man, he's a Jewish man, he's on his way from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He falls among thieves. Uh, they beat him and strip him and rob him and leave him there to die. Uh, then a priest uh, walks by and uh, after him a, a Levite walks by and they look at the man who was there and think to themselves, you know, this man might be dead, and if he is, and we touch this dead body, then we will be ceremonially unclean and not eligible uh, to, uh, to serve in a priestly function. So, uh, in other words, they didn't want to get their hands dirty. Uh, they chose the path of comfort, uh, the path of non-involvement, which is exactly what a quietist would do. Um, where else do we see the um, false gospel of quietism addressed in Scripture? In James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. And then uh, there's 1 John 3, 16 to 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And then we have the passage that Sean read for us earlier from Philippians 3. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So it's clear from this passage that Paul does not believe that you get to a point where you can just stop growing as a Christian and just coast 
to the finish line. The race goes on until you die. Years ago, I had a conversation with a woman who was celebrating her retirement, uh, not retirement from her job. She had done that uh, sometime um, in the past, uh, but she was retiring from the pursuit of growth that Paul talks about in Philippians. So she announced that she had been to church most of her life and she didn't think she needed to go anymore, uh, nor did she need to read the Bible anymore uh, or pray anymore. Uh, she had her bags packed, um, so to speak, and was ready to go home to be with the Lord. It's clearly evident that as she is rounding the curve uh, on the marathon of life and sees the finish line, that she believed that she had plenty of inertia to coast to the finish line. Now I want to contrast that story with another one. Years ago, I took a young man from our congregation to Columbia, South Carolina to meet with missionaries who were there and uh, we stayed in the house of one missionary who was also hosting a, another missionary, an older man by the name of uh, J. Oswald Sanders. He's written a number of books. Um, it's been a while since he died, but uh, very influential. And so was there munching my raisin bran uh, at the breakfast table with uh, Dr. Sanders, and um, he relates a story uh, that he had just experienced. His, his wife had died uh, not too long before uh, we were eating breakfast together, and um, he told me one of the last episodes of his wife's life. Uh, she had a, a, a terrible disease, it was very painful, and so he said, he went to her and said, um, would, would you like for me to see if the doctor will prescribe some, some medicine that will take away the pain and just kind of knock you out so that you're not conscious? I'd, uh, I, I just hate to see you suffering like this. And he said that, she said, don't you dare do that. I must keep on growing. It is necessary that I go through this struggle, through this pain. I don't want to coast across the finish line. I don't know that she said that last phrase, but that's the idea nonetheless. So if we're quietest, we're comfortable to just kind of coast across the finish line. If we're not quietest, then we want to cross the finish line at full speed. And that's what Paul is getting at here when he is speaking to the Philippians. He repeats three times that he has not yet arrived. And in the middle, he throws in the address to, to get their attention when he says, brothers, he, he wants his brothers in Christ to do everything they possibly can to demolish any idea that someone might have that salvation in their hip pocket and all they have to do is coast or stroll 
leisurely across the finish line. So many people think that just because they've been converted and they know Christ, that they can coast from here on in. It's just a matter of time, and they're guaranteed to receive all the final blessings of salvation no matter what. It's all sewn up. It's a done deal regardless of how they live or what they do in this life. Their destiny is in the bag. That's the attitude that Paul is addressing, this quietest attitude. And Paul says, no, that is absolutely not the case. We must keep growing in Christ likeness. None of us, even the Apostle Paul, reaches the point where you're totally Christ-like in all your behavior. And so we must totally strive toward that. The final goal isn't something you just wait for, like you wait for Christmas or some other date on the calendar to arrive. It's something that you run toward. So we've considered two questions thus far. Of what is quietism and where do we find it addressed in the Bible? And now for our final question. How does quietism affect the way we live as Christians in the world today? To answer this question, we need to reconsider the question we raised earlier. What relationship should the church have with the world? Should we keep ourselves separate from the world or should we seek to somehow engage the world? Does the gospel have anything to say to social issues? You know, I've heard it said that the people of God either had the mentality of a battleship or of a cruise ship. The battleship stands ready to penetrate enemy territory and do battle for the commander. The cruise ship exists for the comfort of its people. The quietest gospel leads the, the church uh, toward a cruise ship mentality. The quietest would say that we should focus on comfort. Someone else has put it like this. There is a difference between a missional community and a tribal community. The highest value of a community with a tribal, a tribal mindset is self-preservation. A tribal community exists solely for itself and those who are part of that community keep asking this question. How can we protect ourselves from those who are different from us? A tribal community operates according to principles like this one. If everybody were more like us, this world would be a better place. But in a missional-minded community, the highest value is not on self-preservation, it's self-sacrifice. A missional community exists not primarily for itself, but for others. It's a community that is willing to be inconvenienced and dis discomforted for the sake of the gospel. So you might say, ah, yeah, that sounds profound and everything, but it, it just doesn't sound realistic. After all, uh, we're just a small church in a small town what difference can we possibly make in the world? I want to take you back in history to the early days of the church 
in the first four centuries of church history, uh, there were a number of plagues, not unlike COVID, uh, more deadly actually. And what people were doing was taking those who were stricken by the disease and just dumping them on the streets to die. They didn't want them in their houses. I mean, even people who were cherished family members, uh, they would just ab abandon because they didn't want to catch what they had. And so what the Christians did was they went uh, and took care not only of their own, but also those who were just tossed aside. Uh, not that they ministered to them with uh, medicine or anything. Basically what they did was they gave them something to eat and something to drink, and that was enough to sustain many to the point where they could recover. There was an historian named uh, Rodney Stark who um, wrote a book, uh, Why Christianity Grew, uh, subtitled The Triumph of Christianity. And his findings were this, that as a result of the Christians going to those who were stricken with the plague and nursing them back to, to health, uh, there were, of course there were a lot of uh, other people who weren't uh, nourished back to health who, who did die, but uh, the ones who, 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 who did survive gravitated toward that which gave the desire to get involved in someone's life whom they didn't even know. Uh, some of the Roman uh, emperors uh, tried to get their own pagan, uh, fellow pagan followers to emulate uh, the actions uh, that the Christians took but the pagans weren't motivated by a gospel behind that to get involved in the lives of those who need you. It was everyone for himself and their minds. And now one more uh, closing illustration. This one is a little more contemporary. Back in 1989, there was a small church in the town of Timoshura, uh, Romania, known as the Hungarian Reformed Church. The pastor was a man named Laszlo Tokes. He led the church through revitalization by sharing the gospel with some university students. Let that soak in for a moment. A small church in a university community revitalize when university students come and many of them come to faith? What impact could such a church as that have? Well, um, continuing the story, uh, of course, Romania was a communist country at that time under dictatorial rule under Nicolae Ceausescu, and the regime did not like religion, especially they detested uh, Christianity, uh, and so as long as the, the church was uh, just a collection of, of older people and the pastor was preaching only to people like that, uh, they assumed that the church was irrelevant, uh, that it was no threat to them whatsoever. However, when young people started responding to the gospel, and made public confession of faith uh, by mouth and through baptism, 
then that rankled the ire of the regime. And so what they did uh, was they sent the secret police to uh, Pastor Toke's home, informed him that his uh, ministry there was over and they would be transferring him to an even smaller church in a tiny village, uh, believing that they, if they exiled him, uh, no one would be listening to him. And so on December the 15th, 1989, the authorities came to uh, take Pastor Tokes and his wife away to a small village, uh, but they couldn't get to the apartment. That's because there were several dozen church members who came and surrounded that building so that the secret police couldn't get through and uh, they wouldn't budge. And this went on into the evening. And um, as people walked by, uh, they noticed a crowd and, you know, a crowd draws attention so people would go up and ask what was going on and they would be told and so they also would join the human barricade. One young man uh, went up to the pastor and opened up his jacket and revealed uh, not a firearm as or some kind of explosive device as some might expect but he had a bag of used candles <laughs> and they distributed those as far as they would go and so they lit candles, they sang songs of the faith, and eventually the secret police uh, resorted to force to uh, remove the pastor and his family, fired into the crowd, uh, killed and wounded many. And then something happened that no one expected. The secret police expected the crowd to disperse when they started opening fire. By the way, uh, tanks and other armored uh, weaponry were also summoned, um, fully expecting to intimidate the crowd that was there so they could get on with their business. But the people didn't budge. They just stood there, holding their candles, piercing the darkness, lifting their voices in songs of the faith. And then what was even more remarkable is that after the soldiers, the secret police saw that people weren't going to budge, many of them laid down their own arms. In a matter of a few days, the regime had fallen the despotic uh, leader of the country was captured, tried, and executed. And what was it that brought this chain of this unlikely chain of events into reality? Well, there were some Christians who belonged to a small church that had been revitalized by university students being converted and all they did was stand thus signifying something Martin Luther wrote 
or said, whose song we sang earlier, here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. That's what it takes to combat the false gospel of quietism. Take a stand. Do not be ashamed of what you believe. You may be amazed at the difference it would make in the history of the world. Let us pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we come to you as people who we do not see ourselves as powerful, influential people. Most of us see ourselves as just average, uh, normal people uh, who don't really have an opportunity uh, of having much of an impact in any way. And yet when we read scripture and when we consider history, we are reminded of what you can do through people who will take a stand for you and for your gospel for the sake of those who were in bondage to sin and to the things that sin brings about. Help us to stand firm. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Our song of...